This podcast represents my opinion and the opinion of my guests. This is not medical advice, and I am not establishing a patient-physician relationship with any listener. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each patient is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions you may have. Welcome, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Not Your Doc podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa, here with producer Seth and, of course, Mr. Not Your Doc himself, Dr. Charles Tadros. Hey, how you doing, Vanessa? Seth, nice to see you all. Hello. It's awesome to be here. Great it to is be here. a stinking <laughs> steam room outside. Like, mm-hmm. literally, the windows are fogged because it is so hot this, and humid. I, somebody was looking at me funny this morning. I was walking to a building, and my and my uh, my, my readers uh, were on the tip of my nose because I had two things in my hands, and they were fogged over. And people were looking at me like, what, why are you walking with readers that are fogged over? Anyway. It's terrible. It, yeah. I mean, it's just, I mean, yay, summer. But honestly, <laughs> it's just so, so hot and humid. And then, of course, like, your body's natural, like, cooling mechanism to sweat and for it to evaporate doesn't go anywhere. So you just get hotter and sweatier and... <laughs> More miserable. Well, you just had a baby. Things are still very different for you. Yeah, but it's, it is okay, still... Okay, but I still, think everybody's hot every, sweaty everybody's right sweating. now, yeah. Everybody's, you know what, everybody's um, sweating. I've been wearing glasses since I was a small child. I don't remember <laughs> when I actually... Maybe 12 or 13, but, you know, many, many, many years. Uh-huh. And today was the first day I had to take them off so I could see. Really? I went outside. The first time? I went outside and... Yeah, couldn't see. <laughs> I, I've like, have you ever came back inside and yeah, walked up? Sure, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. I've had that happen. Yeah. But oh, never... but not the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there you go. That's crazy. <laughs> that makes sense. Wow. Well, it's delightful. <laughs> anyway, so heat of the summer, an abundance of rain has caused everything growing in St. Louis to turn bright green and full of life. Like lawns are lush, and you have to mow them twice a week, and trees have all these leaves on them, and flowers in bloom. So. Naturally, we decided the most appropriate topic to talk about today would be death and dying. That was my idea. Yeah. yeah that who's was, we? Dr. Tadros was all over it. He's like, I know just the thing. <laughs> he sent us the group text. He's like, I want to talk about death. Uh, was, <laughs> right. You all right? We're, we're joking. It's a serious right. subject. But, seri- right. but right. no, you, you are right. I was the one that said yesterday, let's talk about death death and especially hospice yeah so what's the thing you brought up yesterday as soon as you're born you're preparing to die something fearful like that <laughs> that's yeah. right well we're not necessarily preparing but we're dying our cells are yeah, aging but that's yes yes something like that yeah sure okay so you know for for real though in all serious so just the summer comes to an end and leaves start to turn brown and fall to the ground all life on earth has a life cycle right including humans We'll all face death and experience a process of dying, and the same is true for everyone we love. All of our, our family members, our peers, our spouses, everyone is going to die. Um, and I think America tends to have an obsession with vitality and youthfulness, and yes. we're always chasing, you know, mm-hmm. immortality. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is a so, you know, makes us really uncomfortable talking about the obvious reality. It's a way to avoid talking about the obvious reality, which is that. The natural course of things is for, you know, youth to be replaced with old age and then life ends. Mm -hmm. So it's a fate we all meet, but we're so reticent to talk about it that most of us have no idea what to actually expect when ourselves or our loved one gets a terminal diagnosis. Yeah. I think the unknown is often worse than the reality in that case. So so to face some of that today, we're going to tap into Dr. Tadros's um, brain and expertise again, um, and this time as a hospice medical director. Mm-hmm. And we're going to let him lead us in a discussion about the end of life. So how we care for the dying, how we care for caregivers of the dying, and what to expect from the process as a patient or a loved one. So, yeah. sure. Dr. Tadros, will you start by giving us kind of a brief overview of what hospice is, and then kind of explain why you wanted to be involved in it as a medical director. Well, I thanks for bringing, thanks for hosting. So, I, yes, I was I was a hospice director for about four four and a half years, several years ago, and then I've I, then I changed uh, uh, um, medical facilities and group and practices, and I became a hospice director, medical director, associate medical director. Uh, for a different hospice for about the last three years. So about seven and a half years. Mm. But I also, I was, whenever I was a young physician, 
my I, I was, my father went to hospice into hospice, um, and I was there. Uh, it was only in hospice for about three days. I was there mm. at, uh, at bedside whenever he died, uh, and my mom about uh, four or six years later also was in hospice for a relatively short while, and she passed away. And when we were there, also my brothers and I. So I've had a personal experience. I've had mm. professional experience, um, and uh, so. I, it was my mother also, whenever she was younger, she was a hospice volunteer. Oh. I remember that. Uh, it was important for her. Um, so that's how I kind of got involved in hospice. Um, and hospice is really a, is a team. It's, a, it's typically a really a, a nurse-run team. Hmm. Uh, uh, there's a, and we'll talk about that. But uh, uh, that's kind of a team that helps people with end-of-life pa- patients and their loved ones, uh, friends and family through physical uh, uh, um, uh, issues as, as somebody's dying, uh, emotional issues, spiritual issues. Um, but the, the concept of hospice was not initially about death. Back, uh, back in ancient times, uh, Latin uh, hospice was actually for uh, visitors and, uh, and, and hosts, uh, guests, uh, guests and hosts. So it was for people who were um, travelers. And this is places that were inviting, mm. inviting. Okay. Um, and then eventually uh, it became kind of inviting people who towards the end of life needed ex- additional help. Uh, so uh, it started uh, actually, this is actually kind of a Western uh, piece that would, the way hospice is nowadays in terms of um, end of life care. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll come back to talking about the diagnoses and prognoses and all these things. But uh, Dame Saunders uh, in, uh, from Britain, way back uh, in, uh, in London, back in 1948, started working with uh, people who are terminal. Um, and she eventually earned a medical degree. And then she came to the United States in 1963 to speak at Yale. And at Yale, she Wait, gave... Wait, so she was a dame who decided to become a doctor? Well, I'm sure dame was probably later. Oh, okay. I'm well, sure she was gotcha. given... She was... Uh, given queen, the honorific yeah, later. Yeah, okay, the, yeah. The, the, yeah, the monarchs Sorry, gave her the, da- the dame uh, yeah, prefix, yes. But she came to talk at uh, Yale in 63, and uh, it kind of, uh, kind of sparked the idea about... Her, what she was doing with her, her work with uh, terminally, uh, terminal patients, patients with terminal diagnoses. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, she went back, uh, and a few years later, she actually started uh, St. Christopher's Hospice in London for the first hospice for the terminally ill uh, in the United Kingdom. Um, and then uh, she uh, taught, and uh, not only took care of patients, but taught, and eventually um, um, the dean of the nursing school at Yale in 68 went and spent some time at uh, it's the year after uh, St. Christopher's Hospice. And uh, that's how it kind of uh, the, the kind of this idea of hospice uh, spread across the ocean. Um, and then and then Medicare got involved back in uh, 1979, started invest and uh, started looking into it. Um, and in 82, when I graduated from high school, it became uh, Medicare became. Uh, 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 allowed this as a hospice benefit, uh, added this as a hospice benefit. So it started really in Europe and spread to the United States, literally uh, within our within my lifetime. Um, so, um, so hospice uh, is is literally an end of life program that's financially supported by Medicare and other insurance plans. We use the word Medicare a lot because a lot of people are elderly, not mm-hmm. everybody. We do have young people, children, neonates, infants, uh, teenagers that are in hospice. Uh, we're not going to talk about those youngsters in sure. hospice where, since I've taken care of people through adult hospice, hospice for adults. Uh, but uh, hospice is, is, a, is a program, but the concept is it's a multidisciplinary people, professionals, and volunteers that are with different backgrounds that come together to help take care of a patient um, and patient's needs and family and family's needs. Mm-hmm. Wow. So um, help help me, give me a little bit of context, I guess, about like Medicare. Medicare is state run insurance for older people who it's are a, not working. It's, it's part of Social gov- Security? It's not state. Oh, okay. it's, Medi- it's, Medi- it's Medicaid. Yeah. Medicare is uh, the national program. Yes. For, for two ty- Generally, uh, for people with severe disabilities, uh, uh, they'd be born with them or mm-hmm. acquire them, and older folk. Uh, so that's, the, that's, the, that's the, the most common primary insurance for older, older people, seniors in the United States. Yeah. Sure. So like before Medicare decided to take hospice on as a benefit and provide it as a benefit, how were people, how were people dying? How were people experiencing? Yeah. I mean, people still obviously were dying. They, and they probably were still dying, dying under the care of their 
their kidney doctor, if they're on dialysis, or oncologist, cancer doctor, or primary care doctor, cardiologist, and stuff like that. So it just wasn't as a, as a coordinated and as comprehensive uh, of a team uh, mm-hmm. back in the older days. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. So um, give us some context about hospice. So who gets it? Where mm-hmm. do they get it? At what point in their disease progression do mm-hmm. they get it? Can you talk about some of those things? Yeah. Uh, so typically, uh, people have all sorts of acute illnesses. Uh, if you break a leg or have a strep throat, the acute illnesses, most of the people in hospice have chronic illnesses. So uh, they, uh, they're going to have typically things that are chronic that are probably not curable mm-hmm. and by the time that they that they've had it for a long time and uh as problems pile up and we'll talk about these uh that they become terminal that we don't think that we can cure them or we mm-hmm. can improve them with the typical techniques and specializations so now we change our purpose from trying to cure trying to mitigate to keeping comfortable mm-hmm. uh, so we change our, our we quote we don't quote unquote give up on people but we certainly change our focus sure. uh, from uh, trying to get you uh, your heart transplant or a new valve or trying to cure your cancer to saying okay the disease process is so far along uh, going to the hospital and doing all these things uh, are, is not is not what you want. It's not going to add quality of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now we need a team of people to help take care of you for the last few days, weeks, months, uh, potentially years of your life. Gotcha. So someone, so who gets it? Someone who has a terminal diagnosis, essentially. Yeah. The typical, and then the, where where do they get this care? Is it always in a hospital? No, that's a good, good question. And so uh, the care, the care actually for these patients, and these patients, like I said, have terminal disease, uh, chronic diseases typically. Sometimes you have a car accident and a, a brain bleed, and that they can go on hospice also, so it's an acute problem. Mm. But most of the ones are like Lou Gehrig's uh, uh, disease, which is a neuromuscular problem, yeah. cancers, dementia, like Alzheimer's and frontal temporal lobe dementia, multi-infarct or multiple stroke dementia, heart disease like heart failure and heart disease uh, like coronary artery disease, uh, HIV, liver disease like cirrhosis, um, uh, emphysema, uh, pulmonary fibrosis and pulmonary hypertension, uh, kidney disease that are on dialysis, strokes and comas. So all these chronic big, big diseases mm-hmm. that sometimes we don't have a way to get people better, certainly not to cure them. Right. And these patients could be in any setting. They could be in the ICU. They could be out on the general medical floors or surgical floors. They can be in the emergency rooms. They can be in the, in the uh, it, it could be at home. They could be a nursing facility. Uh, they could be even in a hospice house uh, or inpatient uh, uh, facilities. So uh, there's there's a variety of places anywhere uh, that a patient may be uh, being taken care of before they enter hospice. Hospice can be initiated. Mm. Gotcha. Okay. So. Um, what, okay, so you talked about some of the common diagnoses for mm-hmm. what qualifies someone for hospice. Are there um, other other ways besides the diagnosis sure. itself that we can determine someone's ready for hospice? Yeah, so okay. I, I named the big ones, obviously, like Lou Gehrig's disease, and it could be Parkinson's, another, neuromu- another uh, neuromuscular problem, uh, neurologic problem, uh, cancers, uh, dementias, HIV, liver cancer, uh, uh, lung disease, kidney disease, to uh, brain uh, brain problems like uh, strokes, uh, but you could potentially have other things. So oftentimes, somebody who's 93 who has a s- couple of spots on their lung and starts stop uh, stops eating mm-hmm. and is losing weight, they may not want a lot of testing. They may not want a biopsy to prove it is cancer, mm-hmm. but they're losing weight. They're 93, and so sometimes we can put people on hospice without a firm diagnosis that it's a cancer or or uh, other things. So th- they're not eating. They're losing energy. Their numbers are uh, maybe abnormal on their blood work, their mm-hmm. bone marrow function, the kidney liver function. So sometimes we don't get a definitive diagnosis before we put them on hospice. Sure. Uh, sometimes we just go by a, a set of, of, of symptoms, typically oftentimes appetite and weight loss, uh, falls, weakness, uh, sleepiness, tiredness, fatigability, easy sure. to fatigue. Um, uh, uh, those are uh, pretty common. It's a little harder to do to get them on hospice, to, to get Medicare to see that, but uh, it's, it is absolutely doable. Gotcha. Okay. That's helpful to know. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So I I want you to address some like common misconceptions, I think, from, from the outside. So like, is hospice voluntary? Like, does mm-hmm. it always end in death? Can sure. you have a DNR? Can you sure. not have a DNR? Like how, what are some of those things? That's very good. Um, and, and we should talk in a different day on euthanasia because whenever people think of hospice, they think like somebody's giving up on me and yes. they're just going to do me in. Right. Uh, and so we probably should separate that out. 
But hospice, uh, uh, once again, is an end of life. So it, it turns out that we need, Medicare requires two physicians to agree that it's usually your primary care doctor, your specialist, plus a hospice uh, medical director to agree that you have less than six months to live from your heart disease or kidney disease or liver or cancer or whatever uh, the diagnoses are. That's called the admitting hospice diagnosis or the primary diagnosis mm -hmm. for hospice. And that's what they're coming into hospice for so we can uh, get uh, money to cover uh, their needs and you know, to help pay for the team and their care, et cetera. Uh, so the patient has to voluntarily, if they're able to, uh, if they're if they're if they have the cognitive abilities and they're conscious and all that stuff like that, and are informed consent, either they enter hospice and they agree to no more curative measures mm -hmm. and stuff like that, uh, and they sign in for hospice, or their representative, their healthcare power of attorney, um, uh, or uh, uh, or. There are a bunch of other ways to do this, but but the typical healthcare provider will sign them in uh, if the patient is you know had a bad stroke and is not waking up or has a severe dementia and can't understand what we're trying to what we're offering. So uh, so the patient signs signs in for this. Uh, once two doctors say, "Yep, you have less than six months to live." No, people do not have to have hospice. People can choose to to not have hospice and also stop their, their, their general medical care or mm -hmm. and stuff like that and pass away at home or at nursing facilities. Mm -hmm. Or they can decide to, to, to continue to have chemo or dialysis until the last day of their life. Yeah. So uh, so I wanna make sure it's not automatic as soon as you, two people, two doctors say that you have end, end of life, uh, your life expectancy six months or less. Doesn't mean automatically you get on it or automatically. You could absolutely, uh, you, you we want people to be offered to understand what it's about, be, sure. uh, but absolutely Absolutely not. It's not right for everybody. Uh, some people, like my, my 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 father, it was the last few days. You know, there was mm. a bunch of stuff to do in the last few days before he passed away that he got on hospice. He would not have been ready six months before that. He would not have been ready mm -hmm. emotionally. Even even though maybe his his symptoms sort of qualified right. him for yes. hospice, ah, that's, that's an right. interesting distinction. Sometimes, okay. sometimes this, and I'll say this openly. Sometimes our specialists, we're so good in the United States with specialist care. This is oncologists and cardiologists and 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 and, and kidney specialists. Uh, sometimes we're so good that we don't know when to say enough. Mm -hmm. uh, that we we know that the cancer is metastatic and stuff, but we have one more chemotherapy, one more radiation, yeah. one more stuff. Even though their numbers are looking worse in terms of their anemia and their kidney and liver and their oxygenation, all that stuff like that, maybe looking. But we have more stuff, more tests, and more things that we can offer. And so sometimes the patient, the family don't say enough, and sometimes the physician doesn't say is enough. Especially whenever you go to these super specialists, that you go to these universities yeah, yeah. where they get the most uh, most difficult of the most difficult cases. Um, you know, they they they're they're, they're uh, part of it. Their job is not to give up right. as early as community. Uh, uh, you know, uh, a physician or uh, oncologist may may say, you know, not much more yeah. to do out here. Sure. So, you know, so yeah. That kind of dovetails beautifully into my next question, which is how how are the what are the goals of hospice care, and how are they different than the goals of any other type of care? Well, sure. Well, it, certainly the goal of uh, goals of hospice care is comfort, mm -hmm. and this is all levels of comfort. This is physical comfort, but it's usually oftentimes shortness of breath and pain are the two big ones mm -hmm. that we deal with. Uh, emotional uh, discomfort, this is uh, everything from sadness and grieving to depression to anxiety um, uh, um, to spiritual uh, uh, unsettled heart accepting heart accepting that this is happening that this it's mm -hmm. them that it's sooner than later yeah. that the, that their that their their death may be coming sooner than later um, so we use this, and this is part of the team, and you'll talk about the team right. and how, how we kind of uh, interact with the family and the patient to help try to achieve that. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so the goal of, a, you know, this is non-curative stuff, That's right? Correct. That's right. So, it's, not, it's not high tech. It's high touch, low tech. Yeah. And we can talk about that a little bit more. Sure. But yeah, it's not no more PET scans, no more CAT scans, no more calls to the ambulance to rush you to the emergency room, all that stuff that we, oftentimes has been happening sometimes for years. Mm -hmm. We say... We, we, the patient, the family, the, the physicians are saying, we're, we know that this is available to us, but we've chosen not to go that route anymore. But right. to, to be able to stay at home or a nursing facility or your, uh, your, or your um, um, independent living facility or whatever mm -hmm. and try to uh, have a better quality of life without as much high tech. Sure. And, the, and there is a, a relatively newer specialty in this space called palliative medicine, right? Yeah. So... <clears throat> 
Maybe that's just semantics. Help us, help me understand. It is, it is confusing. The word palliation or palliate just means to relieve symptoms. Mm. You say, well, that's hospice. Hospice is relieve symptoms, end of life, the last six months. Okay, okay. So palliative care can happen any time before. And of course, it is part of hospice also. Mm -hmm. So, but the palliative care uh, uh, um, uh, section, uh, so palliative care. consultation services that is offered by hospitals and other groups is somewhat different. Oftentimes these patients, oftentimes not always, are nursing home, long-term care nursing homes, Uh um, and they're also um, at home. Those are typical palliative care. They may start in the hospital, you just had a stroke, you're not gonna be terminal, but you can't swallow mm, and all sorts mm-hmm. of other things, but you're having some pain from, yeah. from, from your disability, from, from your stroke, and some other things, some depression. So sometimes palliative care is consulted after like a big stroke or uh, other things. You're not terminal, you're not gonna die in the next six months, not near term, near term terminal. Uh, so that's when sometimes mm-hmm. an extra consultation. So oftentimes it's called a consultation service. They don't take over your whole care typically. Yeah. They help your other doctors kind of shoot, figure out the goals. You say, well, Chuck, that's that's what nurses and doctors have been doing for thousands right. of years, hopefully. The answer is somehow we made it into its own specialty, mm-hmm. uh, palliative care. So it's also uh, for, 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 for discomfort, whether it's pain, shortness of breath, yeah. all that stuff like that. But it's not end of life. Gotcha. Okay, right. so that's the distinction. Right. So, just so I can make sure I I'm understanding clearly. So, like, someone with like Crohn's disease, for example, could have a palliative care specialist who could be that's involved right. in helping their symptoms. Even if say mm-hmm. they don't want to do more surgeries or they don't want to mm-hmm. have an ostomy bag or something like that, they might work with a palliative care yes. person to Often. help come up with different options the to G- relieve some symptoms. Right. They don't understand the GI physician or the cardiologist, nephrologist all know how to do palliative care. Okay. Uh, okay. It's, it's just maybe not as coordinated as whenever you call a palliative care consultation uh-huh. service. A lot they of might times, pull in different therapies right. or something. Okay. So uh, that's, so I, it seems backwards but the quickie answer is we physicians especially whenever they they, they, there were not that many specialists around had to do a lot of stuff yeah um and uh i'll talk physicians now not nurse practitioners or other people who now also do some of the same things obviously but 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 what's happened over the years is that physicians have gotten busier and busier so that they're 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 focused on treatment most of their patients are treatment Mm -hmm. unless they're Mm -hmm. unless they're 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 palliative care doctors or whatever they're most of their patients are got acute and chronic illnesses that are going to be their their patients for decades um so sometimes community Communication slowing down and, and listening and communication is kind of is kind of lost and so oftentimes that's what the palliative care uh, consultation service uh, physician or nurse practitioner will do is sit mm-hmm. down and listen to the whole story, mm-hmm. uh, uh, listen to the family, uh, ask about the psychosocial aspects, all sorts of stuff that sometimes the regular primary care doctor, or cardiologist, or nephrologist, or oncologist may not be able to slow down and do sure. as well. Yeah. And so oftentimes the, the palliative care team will will try to bring in together com- their best thing is to listen and to communicate between the specialists sure. and stuff like that and the family and the okay. patient. Okay, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. But so hospice is inclusive of palliation. That's right. It's about comfort that's and right. soothing, which that's is right. the meaning of that word, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, good. Um, so do you, to, to before we go into what the team is comprised of, do you think, mm-hmm. or do you ever run into like as the, as a hospice medical director, that the, the, the goals of like a patient's doctors are at mm-hmm. odds with what your goals would be like if the patient is on hospice like do the i don't know is yeah. there ever tension between those two groups of people yes of course like anything in life is just exacerbated because kind of the uh, the um the the, the uh the the, 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 circumstances. the the circumstances are are heavier uh-huh. yeah the consequences are bigger uh, potentially so absolutely so uh, Anything that was happening before hospice is sometimes magnified. So if there was family tension mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. anything, about use of resources, use of time, uh, how much money is sometimes exacerbated once uh, the person has a terminal diagnosis and uh, people are having to kind of rearrange their lives to help this loved one. For sure. Uh, you know, whether it's their time or their energy or their money to help the, the, this loved one. So sometimes, you know, ex-spouses, uh, children yeah. that have been estranged, all sorts of stuff kind of comes to the surface yeah. whenever whenever somebody's on hospice or potentially. We're certainly going to get more into that. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, when we were talking about this yesterday, uh, you you were helping me understand that hospice is about a team care approach. That's right. Can you talk about yeah. who comprises the team, what their goals are, 
how often they meet, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Well, the team is fairly sizable, um, uh, and they meet typically weekly or every other week. So Medicare requires that the team review all the patients on their service. Service means anywhere that the patient is, all the patients that are signed up on hospice, no matter where they are, every two weeks. So, mm-hmm. uh, so And again, whether they're at home or in a nursing that's home correct. or in the ICU. Okay, yeah. So Typically during the pandemic, we did it virtually, but uh, uh, the rest of the world, the uh, rest of the time, we actually get together around the table literally every week or every other week. Mine is on Wednesday mornings. Uh, it's been every other week for the last three years, and we're going to go to uh, weekly uh, coming up here, uh, half the patients uh, uh, from A till L. Uh, you know, on uh, on one Wednesday and then the rest of the, uh, the last names yep. uh, on the next Wednesday. Anyway, so physician, this is the team that tends to meet or, uh, or is available under Medicare uh, guidelines. There's a physician, there's a nurse, an, uh, an RN or LPN. Uh, uh, there's a nurse aide. Um, and there are f- sometimes uh, included, not as often, uh, physical therapists, occupational therapists, speech and language pathology uh, specialists. So that's available. Sometimes we, we they oftentimes are not there because they're not used that often. Mm-hmm. Social services, God bless the social workers, social services, uh, dietitians. We don't use as many dietitians, but dietitians can. Pastors, ministers, and pastors. Uh, we have these are people that are hired by uh, to be on the team. Um, uh, those are the typical. Uh, uh, team members mm-hmm. uh, uh, that are there. Once again, it's not just the team that the that the, that this Medicare Part A, this is the hospital benefit, Medicare Part A for these patients um, that covers the, the expenses of all these uh, professionals, but there's also volunteers. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the next thing. And, and this Medicare Part A that uh, pays for this hospice benefit also covers durable medical equipment like beds and bedside commodes and wheelchairs and canes um, and it uh, and uh, it covers medications that are specific to the hospice diagnosis there's one diagnosis the patient may have 10 or 15 diagnoses but there's one hospice diagnosis so if it's the cancer from the liver spread to the brain then the hospice has to cover all the medications related to uh, the treatment for the pain or anything that, that helps with uh, with constipation, all that stuff that yeah. relates to the, these things and anything, seizures or any headaches, uh, hospice prays for all those things through, because Medicare uh, is, uh, ask, uh, tells hospice to cover, the, has to cover these things. Now the patient may still have asthma and, and, and emphysema and diabetes and neuropathy, but they're not related to the primary diagnosis. And so the patient can still get those medicines, but it's not under the hospice. hospice they, can, right. they still can get them through the insurance. regular insurance okay. or whatever insurance they're yeah, on. Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. right. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, um, do so. Say a patient is going to be, uh, you know, newly admitted to hospice. Mm-hmm. Hospice. Do their previous physicians follow them into care mm-hmm. that way? How do, how does the handoff of that work? Yeah. So a large chunk of the primary care, usually the primary care physicians, will follow their patients for critical follow means that they receive reports, uh, they receive calls from nurses about symptom management, and they're the first ones to, to, to manage the medications and other needs for the patient, just as if they would, uh, uh, as whenever they were coming into the office as a, pri- as a patient, primary care patient. So they kind of stand. But so, a lot of uh, physicians choose not to, and they pass off the care, just like you said, hand off the care to a hospice medical director or co-director, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So now the hospice co- uh, medical director who is meeting weekly or every other week with the staff to talk about these patients uh, may know the patient fairly well because they get to hear about the patient practically weekly mm-hmm. um, and the primary care steps to the background um, and stuff like that. Occasionally we'll have a specialist that'll be on board like a nephrologist or everything but uh, you know person on dialysis comes off dialysis uh, they're don't, not going to get a, mm-hmm. a, a kidney transplant etc um, and they come on hospice occasionally we'll get a nephrologist or so a cardiologist on board but typically not. It's typically either primary care doctor uh, with a hospice medical director uh, as a backup physician uh, for orders etc mm-hmm. symptom management or just the hospice medical director is there ever uh like is there ever tension like sure in mediating that kind of dynamic between two physicians maybe there's a you know a long time primary care physician who's been taking care of someone for 40 years or something and they have a lot of opinions about how Mm -hmm. their hospice care should go how does that happen frequently or no fortunately it does not Mm -hmm. most most a lot of primary care physicians will say i'll take care of the patient but you manage the new morphine and the fentanyl and stuff like the shortness of breath because you have the nurses there to listen i'll manage their diabetes 
and other right. things. So that's one way of doing it. The other way is that the docs some, oftentimes will know each other, uh, but sometimes you just pick up the phone. It's professional courtesy to pick up the phone. If you disagree, if if, if, if the primary care physician or whomever is uh, the nurse is calling saying the patient's short of the breath and they decide to use this medicine or to decide not to do anything, the nurse could call the medical director and say, I'm still worried yeah. uh, about blah, blah, blah. And, and for the medical director to, to pick up the phone and call the other physician and see what their thought process is and mm-hmm. say, you know, I, I, you know, the nurse has been out there. I went out there myself to take a look at the patient. I'd rather, I think it's wiser to do this. So it's, it, it, some people will take offense, but it should not. It should not be sure. offensive. Um, yeah. Certainly part of the the professional That's right. plan already of how to navigate that. Yep. Yep. That's great. Okay. So now that we kind of handle on have a handle on what hospice care is and how it functions for patients and mm-hmm. the team members that comprise the hospice team, let's talk more about the personal and family dynamics that come into play sure, yeah. when someone is considering or is going to be mm-hmm. admitted in the hospice. So um, my first question for you is, in your experience, do most patients and families know what to expect from hospice care? You just listed off some of that stuff about mm-hmm. like the different people who are involved, the durable medical equipment, the meds that are covered mm-hmm. for the specific diagnosis. But yes. other than that, do you feel like there's a lot of education that's needed? Yeah, it's a ton. Uh, now, some people come on board because they've had a loved one. They've, they themselves uh, have been on hospice and, 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 and got better and were discharged from hospice. We could talk about that. Mm-hmm. Or they have had a loved one on hospice and they were very involved with that uh, with that pay, that loved one's care until they passed away. So a lot of people are, are, uh, are out there that do know quite a bit about hospice because mm-hmm. of personal experience. But by same token, just like you mentioned, and what we have in front of us are a couple of pamphlets uh, that we, ha- we hand out to patients' families uh, to to describe to them uh, symptoms, what would to expect uh, mm-hmm. as people uh, uh, their demise, their physical symptoms uh, get worse, mm-hmm. or as their systems shut down, their yeah. their bodies, homeostatic systems uh, shut down as they approach death. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, and we're certainly going to talk more about that. Um, is there like? It, and maybe the social worker is a person involved in this, but sure. like you were talking about how, um, you know, not everything is covered under hospice mm-hmm. and that you kind of have to navigate the difference between regular insurance and hospice and that yes. there's limitations to the per diem and all that kind of stuff. Right. Who, who helps patients un- and their families understand what hospice does versus what they need to find somewhere else. So everybody in the hospice team will have some understanding, but the people that kind of know it the best are I- include uh, include the nurse, the, mm-hmm. the nurse who's at the bedside, and uh, the social worker. Um, and there are people that are oftentimes are not at the bedside. There's business people in the business office that will sometimes know some stuff that the, the clinical people don't know. Uh, um, and nurse and there's managers over the nurses that may know. And in my cor- my current uh, hospice uh, company, and I'm not speaking for them, I'm just sure. speaking for myself, they, we have a national company that uh, oversees everything we do. So there's some, mm-hmm. there's multiple layers of people that are in the know about coding. Coding is, is what the numbers and letters you write down for Medicare so, sure. they, so the patient can com- continue in hospice, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Okay, so that coordination of benefits kind of gets worked out between That's right. many different people right. with different roles. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. It, it tends to be less work uh, for uh, when you go on hospice, uh, you tend to have uh, those uh, ABNs, those uh, uh, those uh, advanced beneficiary notices, uh, and all th- all these things that you you get and in, uh, uh, in the mail whenever you go see a physician or go get a lab drawn, you'll sometimes get stuff for months afterwards in terms mm-hmm. of uh, notice of, of 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 what your insurance does cover doesn't cover. Oftentimes, it's much less for hospice. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, you know, we kind of alluded to this previously, or you you did mm-hmm. that, you know, patients and their families sometimes have conflict during this time. Yes. So um, can you talk a little bit more about that? What are some of the th- what are some mm-hmm. of the kinds of conflicts that you see disagreement about care, mm-hmm. how much to spend on it, when and where to have it? Well, the very basics is if somebody, if a family member doesn't think somebody should be on hospice or should be on hospice. Mm. So there are the relatives that have opinions and loved ones uh, have opinions and friends sometimes or that mm-hmm. uh, uh, that have opinions of whether somebody should be on hospice or not on hospice or should be on this hospice versus another hospice. So in St. Louis, we may have upwards of 30 of hospices to pick wow. from. Wow. Yeah. 
um, uh, and hospices typically have to cover an area like something like uh, one hour by driving distance away from their central office, so they can cover uh, you know they could cover maybe fifty mile mm-hmm. radius from their central office according to Medicare guidelines. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's 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 a pretty ex- extensive area that you potentially cover. But we fortunately have many choices here in St. Louis. Since uh, can I ask sure. just a little qu- clarifying question about that? Since hospice is a Medicare benefit, does mm-hmm. Medicare have to equally cover all types of hospices? Are there mm-hmm. cash only mm-hmm. hospices? Are they That's a good that question. provide different levels of care? Yeah, no. I, I, and I, I won't know fully. I could always ask because that's an interesting question because certainly with primary care, you can go see a boutique doctor that may not may just take cash yeah, and sure. not take insurance. There's probably no quite no such thing in hospice. Um, all hospices are primarily paid through insurance and oftentimes it's Medicare, probably okay. 90%, 95%, 98% of the time is probably Medicare that's, uh, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's the, the pays for hospice benefits. Mm-hmm. Other insurances will have, obviously, they have to have hospice benefits, obviously, mm-hmm. also. Um, but but that's that's the first that's that's an important aspect of it. Now, what's not covered is uh, and and we should and I'm not sure if we're going to talk about this later. What's not covered is private duty nursing, right? Uh, yep. And paying yeah, family pay, paying family members to come in and, and sit with their relative mm-hmm. and other things like that. So what's not covered is room and boards for hospice houses. That comes out of your own pocket, mm-hmm. typically. Um, uh, so hospice covers the the, 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 the team taking care mm-hmm. of you, hospice, uh, durable medical equipment like uh, and oxygen, they, uh, and, and they cover medications that are specific to your primary hospice diagnosis. And so that, that's where kind of uh, um, Medicare stops paying is, is, is this level. So if you needed somebody to watch you 24 hours a day and because other people in your household had to go to work or had babies or anything mm-hmm. like that, you pay out of pocket for extra uh, 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 people to watch you and Care. stuff like that. Okay. Private duty nursing. Sure. So yeah. Okay. That's uh, so yeah. Typically, I don't think I don't think I've never heard of a hospice that is just a straight cash mm-hmm. uh, place and mm-hmm. uh, that gives you a different level of service. Sure. Okay. Um, okay. So what about um, you know just pre previously existing family yes. strife and issues. Oh, yeah. Um, do you see? Do you see that oh, yeah. come out? Absolutely. If we have everything, for, we, every, we're a microcosm of, of what's happening in society. Sure. There are people out there that have had drinking problems. That uh, that, that that whether the patient or their family members, they've have financial problems. They they've uh, they've been abused or been abusers themselves. They have problems about getting their house going to be is going to be repossess, is going to be repossessed or their car. Uh, so everything out there that that happens in the in the regular world is happening to our patients and their and their relatives. So that's where uh, our our nurse and our social workers and our ministers, uh, kind of who are oftentimes at the bedside. Uh, speak to us about these things. Mm-hmm. So if a loved one needs a family medical leave act in order to stay home and help take care of their dying loved one, we're the ones that help write that up uh, for, for, for their, for that, uh, for their family member to take mm-hmm. to their HR department and stuff like that. Uh, but that's correct. We sometimes have to uh, kind of mediate as best as we can yeah. um, uh, about these conflicts. Um, and oftentimes we'll, we'll sometimes tap the physician or the medical director or tap their, their primary care doctor, whomever that's known them the best. We have patients from the VA, the Veterans Administration. Uh, they're uh, uh, veterans from uh, military uh, 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 co- uh, conflicts that are in our program, et cetera. Uh, so, um, so we have multiple things that we have to deal with um, that we, we've gotten pretty good at doing and understanding how much we can do and what probably... Sure. Can't, we can't do or shouldn't Absolutely. have to do. Yeah. What about secondary gains? Do do mm-hmm. people sure. try to take advantage of hospice patients? Like, how does your team look out for that? Yeah. So the secondary gains means that somebody has an ulterior motive mm-hmm. rather than uh, our, our primary motive to take care of a patient, emotional, physical, and uh, spiritual. So if 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 for relatives, uh, you know, thinks that they're going to come into some money after this person dies, that's on our hospice program, and they're complaining that 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 uh, that uh, you know we're 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 not treating their pain enough, and we need to give more pain medicine. Mm-hmm. And stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So there are occasional cases like that. We have uh, we have uh, we have um, 
so we have to become aware of that, and we and it's and it's a challenge. Uh, there's no doubt these are not just because we can name it or recognize it doesn't mean it goes away. Sure. Um, we have patients where uh, uh, because we put a lot of uh, controlled substances in the house, benzodiazepines like Ativan and 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 and, and narcotics like uh, like fentanyl and morphine, and uh, uh, we have to so sometimes. Uh, uh, liquid and pill medicines go missing yeah. or are used to quote unquote used too quickly mm -hmm. and sometimes our, our worry is that not the, the patient's not maybe taking extra without telling us but their their grandson or the yeah. grandson's friend that comes to mm -hmm. visit and stuff like that is grabbing uh, and, and running off with the, these products so we have uh, yeah once again we're a microcosm of of of, yeah. of, of the real world yeah, yeah absolutely okay so um what about ethical concerns mm -hmm. so um you know, DNRs, power of attorney, voluntary care. Like, what if a patient changes their mind mm -hmm. about receiving care, but they're sure they're too, you know, doped up basically to express it? Like, how do you right. how do you manage those things? So, you know, competency from a medical standpoint, not a legal standpoint, from a medical standpoint, competency. To if the patient is able to understand what we're saying when we explain hospice benefit to them before we bring them on board, there's an admission nurse that comes and, and sees what the, looks at their history and sees just because somebody. Ask and by the way, that's a good question uh, that you haven't asked yet. Who can refer a patient to hospice? A yeah. patient patient can self-refer to hospice. Their loved ones or relatives, a physician, a nurse, uh, practically anybody can refer to, to ask us to come look at the patient and then their medical record for hospice. Uh, for okay. hospice. Right. Uh, that's correct. Uh, so that's the first thing. Um, the next thing, like I said before, if the patient is competent, and once again, it's sometimes tricky, just like you said, they have they've had seizures, they have a brain tumor, they're demented, uh, they're they're in great pain. How competent are they mm -hmm. to listen to a description of what we what, you know not sure. going to the hospital yeah. and staying at home or a nursing facility and not calling nine one one while we try to take care of their symptoms? So how so that's another challenge uh, that we sometimes mm -hmm. run into is like did, was did the was the patient well informed were they yeah. co coerced in any way by their relative etc. Right. So uh, so that's 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 the next thing. Um, uh, then then the do not resist DNRs. I, I I'm, I'm old. I'm because I can't remember acronyms and, and, sure, and yeah, stuff do like not that. So I'll, I'll just say the words, <laughs> do not resuscitate, means that you've pre-written, it's a single sheet, uh, you could have an outpatient do not resuscitate or in hospital or out of hospital do not resuscitate uh, a sheet that says, I, I don't want a CPR or I do want CPR, mm -hmm. cardiopulmonary resuscitation. If I stop breathing and my heart stops, you know, pump on my chest and put me on, a, on a, and blow in my mouth and put me on a ventilator mm -hmm. and use medications to keep me alive. So uh, that's that's due to, that's the resuscitation mm -hmm. that uh, we we would typically talk about. I don't want uh, I don't want IV fluids. I don't want dialysis. Mm -hmm. So all these things you check off it means do not resuscitate at different levels. It's sure. not, it's yeah, not, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. just yeah. one type of do not resuscitate. Right. Uh, <clears throat> Um, so that's the first thing you can you can have a do not resuscitate. We we, we th that tells us that, you know if you if you have a do not resuscitate uh, page, paper signed and it was informed consent without coercion that is enormous help for us to understand. We, nobody has to call one nine one one etc etc. So that's the first thing. Now we have a small handful of people that don't want to sign that but still want hospice. Mm. You say oh my gosh that's terrible. But we can help give people comfort before 911 is called. Sure. You know, so that's a part of it is to say, hey, we're going to help you with your lung cancers, uh, symptoms of shortness of breath and stuff like that. But they don't. They, but they have not signed a do not resuscitate. That means they want to be resuscitated. So now they get a pneumonia. Now they get short of breath and they get confused. Now you have to do call 911 because they want to be because they're going to potentially die. They're going to potentially mm -hmm. stop breathing because of the pneumonia on top of their lung cancer. So that's when they do call 911 and they go to the hospital mm -hmm. and they come off of hospice while they're in the hospital because gotcha. the hospital is doing resuscitative Treatment. stuff. That's, okay. that's not just, yeah, yeah, not just comfort. So um, if someone signs a do mm -hmm. not resuscitate mm -hmm. order and then in in the moment when they can't mm -hmm. breathe, they say call 911, right. does the document supersede what they want in the moment? No, that's a good question. That's where a lot of conflict comes up. That's where yeah. attorneys and stuff, but you know, once again, we're in an acute situation we can't call a judge we can't call an ethics committee yeah. so to make I, an in-the-moment decision that's right so yeah, for yeah. emergency for decisions arbitrator. that's right for emergency decisions like that oftentimes we'll fall we'll, we'll side on the treatment you know calling 911 or go to the emergency room or the treatment yeah. and then we can uh, later say well i thought you wanted this you said this and you written this and you told other people this but you changed your mind at the last minute and by the way nobody should ever feel guilty that they changed their mind yeah. whether to get on hospice not get on, uh, come off of hospice go to 
the ER, not go to the ER. We, we tell you what our hospice purposes is to avoid the emergency room, avoid all these things. Uh, we try to keep you comfortable at home, oftentimes with morphine and, and people around you and oxygen and other medications, Ativan and other things. It's not the same as going to the hospital where they may put you on a breathing machine and they yeah. may give you antibiotics and other things like that. So that's the, that's the, that's the kind of the balancing act. And this is the, the kind of the ongoing negotiation with, with, with any patient or any family who's speaking for the patient our power of attorneys yeah. what what's our purpose what's our goal you know they have a pneumonia but they're they've been curled up in bed with dementia and, sh and, and shriveled up for three years if we treat the pneumonia and we're just going to end up in the same bed even, yeah, for even you know, longer is that pre right yeah, yeah. Sorry. or well the pneumonia is the way natural course of, of uh, most patients with dementia don't die with the dementia right, right. they die of some Something complications else. yeah uh -huh. yeah urinary tract infection pneumonia yeah. other things like that so this is the challenge this is the hard part about anything whether you're on hospice or not is end of life decisions and who makes them and and how how how, how well do they stick uh where people in their in their in the right mind when they're thinking about their best interest or other people mm -hmm. who speak for you healthcare power of attorneys are they thinking about you and your in your best interest mm -hmm. yeah. so who which of the um which of the hospice care team members are often involved in helping navigate some of those mm -hmm. situations and decisions probably the nurses are probably the That's frontline right. people dealing with it the nurses, right the nurses and the social workers will see most clearly in first they're oftentimes at the, at the, at the bedside in the room uh, uh meet the family etc um, so the family dynamics are very important, especially if a family member is not in town, not in the state, and they're trying to, to, to try to figure out things remotely, mm -hmm. uh, especially if they're people local and people are far away. Uh, you know, the local people see things differently than what the people far away are, are, right. are seeing or hearing. Uh, so this is these are all these things are, are levels of challenges that are there with or without hospice, but they're certainly magnified when the, you feel like the, you have to make urgent decisions mm -hmm. about about the care. Uh, so, so with yeah. the so so probably social workers and pastors That's and right. all those people are part of that emotional and mental support that That's hospice correct. is offering both to the patient and to the family, right? That's to right. try and mitigate some of these conflicts and oftentimes the patient is is the easy part. It's sometimes <laughs> it's because the, the family patient, sure. the patient is the sick one. The patient is just happy to be taken care yeah. of. The patient stuff like, but unfortunately, uh, you know, there's uh, you know not everybody sees everything. And sometimes the, the the nurses or the physicians are never are pretty rigid themselves because they've been you know uh, longstanding and they kind of know what's good for the person. But we have to be careful about that part. But the paternalistic attitude yeah, uh, that right. I know best for you because I've done this for so many years. I've taken care of a lot more people than you've seen die. I've taken care of a lot of people. So you got to be very, very, very careful about cultural differences, right. his, historical differences. Yeah. Had to, like me, my both my parents didn't. They they were not alive to to know this, but I don't think they had as great care. This is thirty years ago. Had great care with hospice back then as what I think we've been able to provide yeah. uh, and stuff like that. So there's a lot of history uh, back there, Absolutely. cultural and and personal. That I mean um, that's my next question you do you see cultural differences Absolutely. In, in people and families and how they want all of this handled oh, can yeah. you give some examples yeah sure well certainly certainly within certain religious so uh, for in the african-american community for instance uh, uh talking about um, um, um cremation is probably a, uh, oftentimes a big no-no and stuff mm. like that so uh, that some people are insulted that you bring that wow, up yeah uh, so um just to talk to people about options uh or to think ahead about what nursing home would you like to use to transport your body from the nursing home or from home? And some people are insulted that you bring that up, mm. even though they're on hospice. Right. So, so our purpose is not to push, but our, to, 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 to ask the appropriate questions. And some people say, you never asked me that. You never told me. Oftentimes we did, but you yeah, know, the, sure. people don't remember. They don't understand. I, you know, they're under, mm. everybody's under stress. Uh, and sometimes we do forget uh, to do things, but that's oftentimes, that's why we have handouts. <clears throat> Almost yeah. every hospice has a folder that, that the patient keeps at home that takes, uh, that they can take with them if they still want to go see the physician on hospice you can still go see your physician um most patients don't they're very uh, but some people some people literally on hospice are still taking trips are are, are still you know are still going to the grandkids uh, graduations and yeah, weddings yeah. so not everybody's curled up in bed waiting to die sure so there's a big range but uh, yes, no. Well, well, there there are a lot of differences, and in uh, the cultures is not just uh, ethnic cultures, but within your family, within yeah. your, your spiritual, your spiritual spiritual faith. Sure. Uh, uh, so yeah, there's a, so we have to be sensitive to all these things. We have a pa our pastors are oftentimes Christian, um, uh, uh, Protestant uh, typically, and some people are insulted that uh, you know if they're Catholic or if they're Jewish, you know stuff like that. Most people are super super. Most patients and loved ones are super nice. Say we love you. 
Bobby, please come. Yeah, or, or, no, right. thank you. We have our own pastor, our yeah. own rabbi, whatever. Uh, and that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. I think that's excellent. Yeah. yeah. But there, you would say there's certainly um, a great amount of deference given to the patients themselves and with their family's wishes. Yes. And you guys do a lot of work Absolutely. to be respectful. Absolutely. And that's that's a, should be that should be a large part of what we do. It's easy to manipulate the milligrams of morphine and mm-hmm. how, much, how many nebulizers for your duoneps uh, for your breathing and, and uh, manipulate your Lasix. That's very easy. <clears throat> the hard part is understanding when people are under duress and under stress uh, and uh, spiritual stress, emotional, physical stress, how to work with them and how to uh, not to uh, step on people's toes mm. and to and to try, still be there for them right. uh, no matter what the hardships are. Yeah, absolutely. It, uh, hearing you say that strikes it just makes me think that your, you know, your decades of experience as an intern has probably mm. prepared you really well to deal with a lot of these situations and, and balance those yeah. two things. Well, there are there are there are no twenty three year olds that sit around the table. Yeah. it's very hard to get a person. Not the twenty three year olds. Some twenty three year olds have seen you know uh, everything. Uh, but but it, yeah, to have a young doctor or a young nurse or young mm-hmm. social worker or young pastor is pretty rare. Yeah, um, they uh, we it's uh, they just is it's pretty rare because the experience comes with years yes, of, 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 of 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 living. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, um, kind of to close us out here, in like in your experience, then what what are the best ways to prepare patients and their families for the actual experience mm-hmm. of death and dying? Yeah, yeah. So there are we do this as booklets, and I'm looking at one of the booklets that we hand mm-hmm. out, and I think that's extremely important because it doesn't use jargon. Um, it's, yeah. it's, it's it's big letters for people mm-hmm. with poor eyesight like me, and still have poor eyesight despite my reading glasses. Um, um, and it, it talks about um, kind of starting from a few months uh, before to to last few hours. Yeah. And so let's let's go over some of this stuff. We're gonna actually in our second part here. Beautiful. We're gonna go into this completely. Actually, so beautiful. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So certainly providing information and having open lines right. of communication right. are, are certainly how to set and not use jar, not use weird lingo yeah. and jargon um, and 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 to mimic or mirror what the patient or their loved ones how they use um, the terminology yeah. for us to use their terminology instead sure. of them. I'll sometimes <clears throat> tell people this is the terms that we use, yeah. but let's use your terms because right. because now I know what you mean. Right. So that way they Speak understand their language. Wow, right. that's really that's a very loving. Yeah, it's gesture. It's too. I just want them to know that sometimes other people will not notice that we're speaking past each yeah. other, and that 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 I recognized it, and I I want to make sure that they understand. Uh, you know, all sorts of all D, do, DNR do not resuscitate. You know, right. there, there are multiple ways of not of quote unquote not resuscitating. So mm. there's a so all these nuances that you think well surely people understand or know the answers they don't. Yeah, absolutely. And they're well educated too, but they don't. Sure. You know? Okay, so um, this has been super informative, all about hospice, yeah. kind of the services that are provided, um, what to expect when loved ones put on it. So um, this is the first part of our discussion. The next part, we're going to talk more specifically, actually through one of these booklets that's given to hospice patients about um, what to expect from the dying process itself, those yes. last you know months, um, days, and moments of a person's life, the physical, mental, and emotional changes mm-hmm. that are experienced. So yes. please hang on tight with us, um, audience, and join us for the second part. Uh, once again, this is the Not Your Doc podcast. Uh, you can check us out on YouTube, Spotify, um, at our website, notyourdoc.com. You can uh, email us, of course, at notyourdocpod at gmail.com. And we'll be back for part two. Thanks, Dr. Tadros. Thank you. This previous podcast represents my opinions and the opinions of my guests. This is not medical advice, and I'm not establishing a physician-patient relationship with any listener. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only, and because each patient is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions that you may have.